We all gotta eat. And maybe it's this mundane fact that food appears in our daily lives with a relentless inevitability that makes companies operating in the food and beverage industry think there are less R&D opportunities available to them. While there might be some flavor novelties to research and develop, other experiments would be at best gratuitous and at worst damaging to their products. On today's episode of The Fiona Show, R&D Tax Credit, we hope to toss out this rotten view of R&D for the food and beverage industry. While the nature of these industries presents some challenges to compliance, the opportunities are no less abundant than others. In fact, there might be more than others. And to help us break down the R&D offerings available to this staple industry, I'd like to pass things over to Director in Solutions Engineering here at Cross Border Solutions, Alan Tobin, and Manager of R&D Tax Credit, also at Cross Border, Lydia Clowney. Welcome to you both. I'm actually going to hand things off to Alan to lead this conversation. Alan, you have the floor. Hey, Lydia. How are you? Hi, Alan. I'm so good. Uh, great to have you back with us again. So we usually like to start off with a high-level overview of an industry's R&D opportunities when we do these podcasts. But in the case of food and beverage, there's some obvious challenges to R&D claims that we need to get out of the way. So let's start there. What are the challenges that you see to this industry in terms of R&D tax credit compliance? Yes, absolutely. Well, we're talking about manufacturing and that's, you know, even though we're talking about food and beverage manufacturing, manufacturing in general is such a rich area for the R&D credit. But there is one part of the Internal Revenue Code Section 41 that we rely on that says that you're not permitted to take into account for the credit activities that are related to style or taste or cosmetic or seasonal design factors. And so a lot of food and beverage companies look at that and they say, well, everything I'm doing relates to taste. Nope, <laughs> my product is eaten or drank by consumers and that's what I'm trying to develop or improve here. So how could I be qualified? I must not be, this must be a credit that's for other industries, not for mine. But that's actually a misconception. And so when we get a little bit deeper, we can look at the regulations behind that code section. And in fact, one of the technological in nature uh, aspects that are good for the credit is biological sciences. And biological taste goes along with that. And so if we're talking about how humans taste and perceive flavors, well, at that point, we're actually talking about a hard science and not about the pure aesthetics that are really more of what that uh, statutory exclusion is trying to get at. So we're not just changing a color because, hey, folks like green this year, whereas last year they liked blue. You know, for this, we're talking about creating a new flavor and how will that be perceived within the consumer's mouth? You know, I, I was going to say, you know, when you get into these specific challenges, especially in an area where people haven't historically claimed R&D, you know, how do you overcome those challenges? You know, we always look to trying to really understand the activity and then document it. And I think the interesting thing for food and beverage as a subset of manufacturing in general is that the product development really does kind of step hand in hand alongside process development a lot of times. And so it can be hard to tease out purely one from the other. And a lot of times we're looking at essentially doing both simultaneously. And I think that can be a little bit easier for folks to wrap their heads around when we're looking at how do we do it in addition to uh, what are we doing? 
That's great. Thank you so much. And, you know, so these challenges are pretty obvious, but they're not quite as insurmountable as the food companies think. So, you know, let's get into some of the R&D projects that a food or beverage industry can qualify for. And, you know, what are some that come to mind? Sure. Well, I, I kind of always love to go to breweries as an example. Maybe that's just personal <laughs> interest, but I think there's also a lot of food out there. <laughs> Um, but I think about, you know, if we talk about just that pure product development where we're maybe we're thinking our flavor is going to mean that we can't take a credit uh, for that activity. But making a new beer, a new flavor of a new beer absolutely can be qualified development. And then you get into, well, how are we going to actually make that beer? You think about a lot of breweries will have a setup where they have maybe a small brew pub where they're making kind of test batches, kind of usually they're kind of funky flavors, things they're not sure are really going to resonate with their customer base. And they'll try things out on that smaller equipment just to kind of limit risk and keep things small scale. When something's really successful, though, then you'll look to starting to produce it on maybe your larger production equipment. And even that, taking something where we know on the small equipment, we really liked this peanut butter stout or, you know, whatever it is. Uh, But how do you make that on your production scale equipment. And, you know, with recipe development, it's usually not as simple as saying, well, we're going to double or triple or quadruple our batch. We'll double, triple, quadruple our ingredients. Usually it's it's much more complicated than that. And the interactions between ingredients can get uh, really complicated. And so, you know, when we say complicated, that's a, a great buzzword for being qualified in that, that R&D credit area. Complications usually mean we're working through uncertainty. And so if we have to experiment in order to figure out, well, you know, do we double the peanut butter or do we have to, you know, is it 10 times the peanut butter we would have used on the small scale because, hey, the yeast is going crazy and what are we even doing here? That kind of activity, that kind of uncertainty and those challenges are what make that project really attractive for the credit. You know, from my own personal experience, I sort of witnessed the beginning of the flavored malt beverage market, right? And there was a lot of R&D that went into that. You know, it was new to the industry and there were certain regulatory and parameters that had to be met. And obviously there was a ton of science that went into it. You know, no one else had done this at the time. You know, we see a lot of the hard seltzers around now, right? They've been popping up over the last couple of years. You know, do you think there would be any, mm-hmm. any R&D in sort of that development? I absolutely think so. And I think with seltzer, maybe it seems simpler to us drinking it than it does to the folks making it because there are a lot of different ways to kind of skin that cat. You know, what are you starting with? Sometimes you're starting with what we call a wash or, you know, the, the your product and distilling it further and getting it to a place where you can mix it with different flavorings. But, you know, it seems like a lot of these companies are coming at it from different directions. And you'll even see, again, going back to those breweries where you'll have a traditional brewery uh, making some of these seltzers. A lot of times they're going to be doing that in a vastly different method than one of your large scale producers. A lot of times they're starting with what would otherwise be a waste product in order to kind of refine it and flavor it up and get it to you know, be able to use it as one of these new beverages. And also another area that we would see, and this may be particularly with beer, but I mean, really with all food manufacturing, is the cleanliness, the sanitation, the hygiene level. Some of these things need to go through and trying to keep everything clean and developing new techniques to do that, to be able to produce some of these products in a really hygienic and, like you say, adhering to regulation manner, that's also going to be an area where that process development, process improvement is going to come into play. That's a great segue. And keeping along 
the lines of uh, adult beverages. You know, when you talk about winemaking or viniculture, you know, they're always constantly looking at the quality of the grapes or how to prevent the spread of disease that could really destroy their inventory. So they're looking at increasing the quality of corks or even moving to twist-offs, but a lot of this comes back down to process improvements. Are there any other areas of process improvements that you see in the food and beverage industry? It's almost infinite. So it's almost even hard to just focus in on one. I guess I'm thinking of touring a factory and these people made frozen garlic breads and we're touring the factory and everything's kind of rolling right. And it's kind of like you're watching Mr. Rogers at the crayon factory. All the loaves of garlic bread are, are you know, running on conveyor belts over your heads and they're all, you know, sliding down a slide to get to the garlic butter fountain. And and then all of a sudden everything stops and there's a bottleneck essentially. And what does this person do? This person grabs a broomstick and starts starts knocking the bread (laughs) off of the conveyor belt and, and it's raining garlic bread down on all of us. And that actually, we learned later that in itself had spurred a new process improvement where essentially it came from that guy. He headed the maintenance department, figuring out with his team, well, what's the best way that we can avoid having this happen? You know, every, it was happening like, you know, twice a week maybe is all, but that shutting down the line for 15 minutes, you know, can have a huge impact on how much you're producing. And so when they went through this effort to identify the problem, They sketched out different potential solutions in order to alleviate the problem. They looked at, well, if we use solution A, how will that impact the rest of the production line further downstream versus how will that work for option B? Running through those kind of analyses for the different hypotheses and then actually testing it out and coming up with a solution where there was no broomstick necessary and and you know, no one else would have to go through the, the garlic bread fountain ever again. That's a really neat example. Note to multinational companies everywhere, if you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, Big Four. We've got the answer. Cross-Border Solutions AI-powered transfer pricing software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, penalties, and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big-name consultant. Again, apologies big four. Stay in compliance and on budget with cross-border solutions, AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, big. You know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of cross-border solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai tp. That's xbs.ai tp. You know, we've talked about new product development. We've talked about process improvements, improvements of the production lines. What about other areas that may qualify for the credit that you may not typically think of? What about sustainability efforts? Sustainability is great. Yeah, I think that's a huge one. It's something that companies are doing anyway as even just a a marketing effort. And, you know, when we're looking at R&D credits, we love looking at what are you already doing where we can get you a little bit of money back? 
So go back to that brewery example, and they have a lot of wastewater, and that wastewater can't necessarily be flushed down a municipal sewer. So what do you do to it? There are scientists that are looking at techniques for changing the chemistry of the water in in various ways, whether it's using something biological like an algae or whether it's a filtration system, so that a company can actually just, you know, dump to the sewer system and not have to worry about these really complicated efforts to dispose of this stuff in other ways if it's too caustic or what have you. So yeah, sustainability, I think, is is a a great area. And I think we're going to see more of that, even just as rules and regulations that the U.S. has in play, we're going to force companies into doing things maybe a little bit differently. And just because the government says that you need to deal with your waste differently or smarter or in a greener sense doesn't mean that you can't apply for an R&D credit for that. Just because you have to do it doesn't mean that you shouldn't get credit for it. I totally agree. That's a great example. And I think that demonstrates that it's not just new product development, not just process improvements that can qualify for the credit in this industry. So, Lydia, I want to put you on the spot a little bit because we know the R&D credit is a wage-based credit. You know, are there a bunch of job titles that people should be looking at in terms of the organizational structure where they might want to start to see if there are any R&D qualified activities? Sure. You know, I'm always going to say you're going to start with your highest tech folks first. So anytime you see a title that says scientist or chemist, those are really fruitful areas. Engineers of you know almost any stripe a lot of times will be a good place to start. But I even more than wanting to call out those really good job titles, I would want to emphasize that you should be looking at every job title because, you know, for instance, at the garlic bread factory, it wasn't the engineers that had figured out that there was this issue with the line. It just kind of hadn't risen to that level. It was the maintenance people. It was the folks that were on the ground actually watching it and grabbing that broom handle every day, trying to fix it. They were the ones that looked at that and came up with the solution. So, you know, we want to think about the roles that everyone at the organization is playing. And and because the U.S. R&D credit is so broad, we aren't constrained to only people with a four-year degree, for instance. We can really look everywhere. Great points. Great points. So, you know, with President Biden proposing incentives for clean energy projects, considering that some of the R&D opportunities have to do with using more environmentally friendly materials or processes, where do you see the opportunity to potentially double up on incentives by working in this direction lies? I think there are some opportunities. Definitely, if we're looking at like really big projects, maybe we are transitioning our factory from more of a a traditional energy source to, to green energy, whether that's solar or wind project or something like that, there certainly can be the opportunity to claim credits on that. Now, one thing I'll say is that, you know, in, in the examples we've been talking about, I doubt that the brewery is probably designing their own solar system and installing the panels and working through the uncertainties associated with getting that hooked up to their machinery or their grid or, or what have you. But but they're probably paying somebody to do that. So when we talk about contract research projects like that, when we're paying a, a subcontractor, a, you know, an unrelated third party to, to do something on our behalf, we want to make sure that we're looking at the, the rights and the risks of the project. So when we have those subcontract expenses, we want to make sure that the taxpayer that we're working for has the substantial rights to any of the intellectual property being created. And then they also have to have economic risk of the success or failure of that uh, research and development project. So what this really means is that our taxpayer has to have skin in the game and they have to have rights. 
And the reason for this is that the IRS wants to avoid a situation in which two different taxpayers are claiming credit for the same project. So we don't want to make a situation where the company installing the solar panels or designing the system and the company having that done on their behalf are both claiming credits on the same expenses. And so we really have to look to the, the contractual language there. So that's one thing I caution if a, if a company is looking at instituting one of these big projects, it's, it's worth asking those questions and taking a look at the contracts or even you know, running them by a, a trusted advisor to see whether the language is in place to allow you to claim it if you're expecting it. And we both know that you know, the IRS is going to focus on this area, right? It's, it's not something that they sweep under the rug. It's certainly something that they're going to want to review to make sure that the taxpayer has it right. Would you agree? agree with that? Yeah, I'd say anytime a credit claim gets in front of the IRS, I think it's one of the easier procedures that they have is to request those contracts and, and kind of kick the tires for, for whether those rights and risks are in place. So I would say that's crucial if you're looking to include any of those subcontract expenses to, to make sure that you that you have analyzed that contract for those, those aspects. Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University Weekly. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai slash tpu. So some companies have been really investing in this direction, you know, providing their own incentives. For example, a major fruit company is currently investing millions in companies who are working to end food inequality. They're trying to build fair trade, sustain supply chains, or basically trying to develop a new food system, a holistic approach and innovate at every stage of production and even distribution. A major goal is to dramatically reduce carbon emissions, and that's just one example. But this incentive then is coming from the big company and the investments being made by them to small organizations. They're essentially, they're creating their own credit, right? Let's pull back the curtain a little bit. Do we think this company is going to apply for credits for all this work? And if they do, what do we think the odds are they'll be awarded credits in return for their investment? What an interesting situation. And you wonder, don't you wonder about whether they're expecting that or whether they think that they'll reach their goals even without claiming credits on some of that activity? I, you know, I, it sounds like likely that one of those two parties, either the larger company providing some of that cash or the smaller companies that are receiving it, I would guess that one of those two parties would be able to apply for those credits. And again, we'd want to go back to the contractual language between them. Who's at risk? Who is going to bear the burden if the research succeeds or fails? And then on the other hand, who's getting the rights? Now, what we see is that often both of the parties to an exchange like that will have some kind of substantial rights to the research. And part of that is substantial isn't really defined in the code as such. When we look to what substantial rights are, we, we think of them as rights that have substance. So a lot of times a shorthand for that would be, well, you know, can, I, can I use this IP? Can I sell the IP? 
am, am I precluded from doing so? Then I probably don't have rights. So a lot of times both parties can have that, but the risk area can be a little bit trickier. So, you know, who is ultimately going to pay out if the research goes south? Who's on the hook there? And, and I will say there are situations where nobody gets those credits. If you think about, for instance, if our, if our larger company says that they reserve exclusive rights to any IP created, but then the smaller company is the one that bears the risk, well, then at that point, you know, nobody gets it. And that's an unfortunate situation. And it's why it's really nice when you're looking at a partnership like this or, or an arrangement with another company like that. It's really nice to get someone involved ahead of signing that contract. If you have expectations that this will be due to you, if you have expectations of receiving a credit for this work, you know, I would really recommend that you look at that ahead of time and see if you can get an opinion on, on whether the contract terms support that. Very well said. And I totally agree with that as well. And as usual, before we wrap up, I'd like to put you on the spot if that's okay with you. Of course. <laughs> All right. So, you know, we've talked about some pretty complicated issues today. And I guess one big concern everybody would have since, you know, we're talking about complicated issues in an industry that maybe most people haven't naturally thought of as having qualified R&D expenses. Where are the taxing authorities on this? Where are the IRS and the state jurisdictions on this in terms of understanding the difference between what's purely cosmetic and what's being done that can potentially qualify for the credit? That's a great question. I think it can be hard to answer because there's a lot of individuality from the federal level to various states' interpretations or you know, even different rules that they have or different regulations that they have. But even on an individual level, from auditor to auditor, or sometimes in an R&D exam, you'll get an engineer assigned to the case. And I've seen situations where that engineer, that auditor, it may have wide-ranging expertise in a certain area of you know, science or engineering or industry, but no experience in your particular company's industry. And so, Absolutely. Yep. yeah, and it's interesting because what we see is that the less expertise uh, an agent or an examiner has in that particular niche area, it can be much harder to demonstrate the uncertainty, the permitted purpose, you know, the, the R&D that's happening. I think it's when folks don't have that experience is when they can make things a little bit oversimplistic. So what I'd always say is if you get into that situation, it's great to understand what kind of experience your examiner has. And then also to just try to lay it out as cleanly as possible. And that documentation is going to be crucial for any exam, but I, I think in particular for these. And one thing we do like to do, kind of taking it back to what we were talking about at the beginning, is, is marrying the product and the process and showing that, you know, it's not just that we're making a new flavor. It's that we're doing this in a way we haven't done before. So we don't put in front of an auditor that, all we're looking at is this flavor versus that flavor. We're saying, hey, you know, I'm an ice cream manufacturer. When I change the flavorings for this ice cream, it also changes the way that that ice cream crystallizes when it freezes. And if I can't make a, you know, the proper texture and the proper, you know, viscosity or, or freeze point of this ice cream, it simply won't be a viable product. Maybe it won't even, you know, stay frozen on the shelf and not bleed out of my cardboard carton. And so if you can put those two things together and show why that new flavor also impacted other parts of your manufacturing, 
I think it becomes a lot simpler for anyone to understand, even if they don't have that background in food science. I think that's great. A great analogy. You know, if a taxpayer could demonstrate sort of that marriage between the product and process, because conceptually we're talking about multi-layered issues right here. But if you could demonstrate that marriage, then you're sort of in a better position to explain it to the taxing authorities and really educate them on, you know, on what that marriage is between the product and process. So thank you very much, Lydia. I really appreciate all your time today. Thank you so much. As a lover of R&D tax credits and also food and beverages, I'm very happy to be here. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai/rd. That's xbs.ai/rd. Welcome back, everyone. We'd like to thank Lydia, Allen, and everyone at home for joining us today. Don't forget to check out the entire suite of Cross-Border Solutions tax podcasts on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. This podcast was hosted by yours truly, Matthew DeMello. Andrew O'Donnell is our audio producer. Stephen Markow is our associate producer and writes our scripts. We'll catch everyone next time.